Hello folks, and welcome back to Ear Read This. My name's Ash, and over the last couple of episodes I've been talking about Henry IV, parts 1 and 2, and I'm very lucky to have been joined by Rob Miles and Sarah Peachy from The Show Must Go Online to do so. Make sure you check out those episodes if you haven't already. As for today's podcast, I'm talking more about The Show Must Go Online in detail by asking Rob and Sarah about what their process is with rehearsals, casting, and how they deal with the technical challenges of their live Zoom performances. As before, there are links to their productions in the episode info box below. Only other thing for me to mention is that our conversation was recorded back in June, so there are a few references to things like lockdown and what Rob and Sarah are currently rehearsing that are a little bit out of date. But I began by asking them where and when it all started for The Show Must Go Online. I think we I think we preempted lockdown by a day, I think, <laughs> maybe. Or, bit, oh, not lockdown, sorry, the shutting down of theatres, yeah, I think, happened the following day after the first read. I remember it as a game, like, it was the Sunday or the Monday, and your tweet went out on the Friday. No, 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 it was after the first show, I think, that the theatres actually oh, yeah, shut no, down. Yeah, think it might be. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so, no, I lost a job that was going to take me through April, um, which feels like, yeah, several years ago now, but uh, at that time it felt like a big deal, because it was still early March, um, and I'd been counting on that as artists often do uh, you know we, we work in a kind of bridging system don't we you know you make hay while the sun shines and then try and ration it out the rest of the time yeah it was clear that wasn't going to happen and on the same day I think I saw uh, probably five or six of the friends mentioned that they'd lost work as well and so it, it became clear to me that those that are working in mid-scale regional touring or fringe theatre on the kind of smaller side of the industry that we were the first dominoes to fall we were the canaries in the coal mine and this was going to get worse. Mm. I was lucky enough to be involved in a Shakespeare reading group that was run by a friend of mine, John the Billen, who, which was completely informal. And it was just actors meeting up in a pub to cold read a different play every week until we'd done them all. And I'd done kind of four or five of those the year before, always really enjoyed it. And I thought, well, through our freelance work, Sarah and I both work in innovation. We were familiar with Zoom already before it was cool. And so we had had this idea to do readings using Zoom just as a way to fill the time, try and patch over the grief. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it was just a matter of, well, how can we try and do the thing that we love to do in, in a situation that makes it impossible to do it. Um, and so I just put out this tweet saying, thinking about reading Shakespeare's complete works in the order they were written and doing it on Zoom. And that was it. And then we kind of left it for uh, probably four hours while we made dinner and, you know, watched an episode of Queer Eye or something. I don't know, honestly, anymore. But then checked my phone and it was like, whoa, OK. So we had this overwhelming response. I think within four hours it had had over like 100 likes and whatever retweets and whatever. And for me, I'm not a Twitter, Twitter person. Like, I'm not a social media guy. Mm. So that for me was like viral. Oh, my God, I've gone viral. What do I do? And so uh, that's where Sarah came in. Uh, in terms of taking what was an idea and turning it into a project? Mm. Um, yeah, so one, I think by the next day we'd had about, it was over 400 likes on the tweet. So we thought, okay, we've got, got some interest here. And, and what I think you'd mentioned as part of that was, you know, if anyone wants to watch it, you know, we can we can let people come and do that as well. But yeah, so we, we then the next day thought, okay, when do we do this and how do we do it? And as you say, we've, already were familiar with Zoom. So we realized that we should have a sort of systemized way of getting people to sign up. So um, we contacted a couple of friends of ours who work, uh, one who works in academia 
uh, one who is a, a like a data um, an analyst uh, who is an absolute whiz at being able to filter a lot of data. Mm. So we worked with the two of them to establish a sign-up sheet that was going to allow us to be really diverse in giving opportunities um, to underrepresented groups. Uh, and that included as well amateurs and professional actors, and then a way to collate all that data and to be able to do the casting. So, and I, I can't remember now how many people we had sign up. I think it was, it was a few hundred, wasn't it? Yes, it was. I think it was around like, 300, 300 I think, yeah. in that first week. Yeah, yeah. It, was, it was wild. <laughs> wild 300 um, for two gentlemen of verona yeah exactly yeah i'm as surprised as you are and to this day as surprised as you are um and then yeah so then we decided that we're going to stream it via youtube so that people can watch it and that began a kind of snowball effect of unintended consequences because that gave it a global audience it gave the audience a way to interact live via the live chat in a way that felt like a, a kind of close analogue to Elizabethan groundlings, who I don't imagine would have been particularly quiet while the show was going on. Yeah. You know, I think you were there to fight and earn their attention. And if you hadn't done so, then that was kind of your fault. I think it's a lot of the reason why the long soliloquies are broken out into distinct sections is so that you can talk for as long as the audience will listen for, and then you've still got the conclusion at the end. So it's like, oh, I've lost you. Okay, well, this is what I'm going to go and do. And then we're off. It's a theory. It's a theory. It sounds a but, bit like that um, pirated version of, uh, or the, the the foul actor's version of Hamlet's speech, where it, it's something yes. like, to be or not to be. Aye, yeah, that's it. And that's the, that's that's the whole, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Those those foul papers, or yeah, what I think is it memorial copies they call them sometimes mm. as well. Um, yeah, where either actors or people just writing it in shorthand in the in the audience, and then kind of trying to reconstruct it from memory. Yeah, fascinating. Uh, fascinating that that kind of piracy was going on. I think mm. plays are obviously popular enough that people will be happy with a ripoff. Mm. <laughs> It always bodes well, doesn't it? Yeah, um, yeah, so then, yeah, the YouTube thing obviously meant that it went global as well. So then we s- suddenly started getting a lot more applications from the US, Australia, Canada, uh, kind of English speaking countries uh, wanting to get involved. And we've continued to get those people involved. Um, to this day, what you know, we still rehearse until 10 o'clock at night so that it's not hideously early for those that are in America which makes it fun sometimes, but it's, it's definitely worth it. Mm-hmm. I hadn't even considered that. I, I, I was, I was going to ask you about the rehearsal process, obviously, but uh, I hadn't even considered the time difference. Yeah, you've got people <laughs> from all over. Gosh. Yeah. We did do one show where we had uh, some actors on, I think, the west coast of the US. So they're eight hours behind. I think we had in that same show someone in Singapore who was about seven hours ahead so <laughs> someone's so losing lit- sleep yeah exactly where there was no way we could get both of those people in the room at the same time because they were always going to be in the middle of one of their night times yeah. um, so we we have blocks throughout um the kind of two or so days two to three days that we rehearse with everyone um where we just block in um tracks with the different characters and so we just had to basically do a bit of a transfer so we had you know some of those actors coming to the morning rehearsals in the UK time. And then we do kind of the scenes again in the evening at some point so that those actors can join. So we always try and find a bit of a, yeah, a, a middle ground that works for everyone, but where we do have time differences that are just wildly apart. Yeah. You, you just have to, yeah, yeah. Run, run it. 
as much as you can. In our Taming of the Shrew, Sally, who was playing Katarina, was based in Australia, and Miguel, who was playing Petruchio, was based in LA. So that's probably one of the widest time differentials for leads that we've had to kind of mm. um, cross over. And in that case, Sally was just very brave and just put herself on UK time for the for the three days. So, so I, she was experiencing jet lag while still in the same country, but she was throwing herself into a completely different time structure in order to do the show, which is extraordinary and testament to the kind of extraordinary commitment that we've had from actors from all over the place. You know, mm. it's, it's extraordinary that people continue to want to get involved, that they believe in what it is that we're trying to do, which is to make Shakespeare for everyone free forever. And people wanting to work with people from different theatrical traditions as well. I think that's been a fascinating part of the work is the fact that the American training, the Australian training, the British training and not having training, the autodidacts, which I am one of and a lot of our kind of amateur actors are as well. Um, and a lot of other professional actors have found their way in without having gone to drama school necessarily. You're, you're marinating yourself in a huge range of different perspectives and approaches much more so than if you were just working on a show with a single cast that comes from the London area, if you like. So I think yeah. that's one of the cascade of unintended benefits that we've we've discovered as a result of doing this. And good morning to you wherever you are in the world and welcome to The Show Must Go Online, bringing you live performed readings of Shakespeare's complete works with a global cast every Wednesday. I'm Robert Miles, actor, writer, director and creator of The Shakespeare Deck. Tonight's Henry IV, part one, will start in approximately 15 minutes time. The first Tonight's Henry IV, part two, will start in approximately... Tonight's Henry V will start in approximately 15 minutes time. Henry VI, part one, will commence in approximately 15 minutes time. Henry VI, part two, will commence in approximately 15 minutes time. Tonight's Henry VI, part three, will commence in approximately 15 minutes time. Tonight's Richard III will commence in approximately 15 minutes time. Is the, how does it compare from a directing point of view and perhaps from an acting point of view as well, going from directing a play like Richard II, heavy on the verse, to you know, a more prosy play? Is it easier to direct actors or is it much of a much less? Hell no. no. Absolutely not. No, it's a, it's a bane prose. Prose is awful. Why would you ever use... No, it, prose is a wonderful device. So the difference, the key difference for me between verse and prose, some people see it as... This is the language of the upper class, the elite, and this is the language of the commoner. For me, that is absolute bobbins. I don't know whether I can swear on your show, but if, if I could... Okay, it's bollocks. It's absolute bollocks. There are too many examples of people that are far too clever using prose for that to hold any weight, in my opinion. Instead, another theory that I've seen, I think it might be Patsy Rodenberg. I'm not entirely sure. I'm not very good with my attributions because, as you've mentioned, doing this 24-7, 16 weeks in a row, everything kind of melts together. But is the idea of the language of the heart versus the language of the head. And versus the language of the heart, it's the language of emotion and honesty. And prose is the language of the head, of the intellect, of argument, but also of deception and of humour because verse has a time signature, 10 beats per line. 
and as incredibly varied. And Richard II is a beautiful example of how you can write something in verse which should feel restrictive or monotonous and you can write an entire play in it and you don't even notice because you've found so much variation in that rhythm and yet at the same time it doesn't allow you to surprise the audience in the same way that prose facilitates because in prose you can have a sentence that is four lines long and then you can have a sentence that is two words long immediately after it and so that variation of rhythm can be so much more exaggerated that allows you to surprise the audience to catch them off guard to take them on these winding journeys all of which are far more useful in comedy because comedy is based on surprise, right? A joke is you're told one story and then the punchline turns that story into a different story. And then that, that, the tension and the release of that tension is what creates the laugh. And so prose is incredibly useful for that. Similarly, prose is really useful for deception because it allows you to, like a bait ball, if you watch nature documentaries, fish will swarm together and swirl around. You're creating this swirling morass and tempest of words in which it's harder for you to unpick the logic, right? Because it's not structured. The downside of that as an actor and as a director is that you are on your own. Shakespeare in verse gives you a structure and he maps your way through that structure almost for you to a large extent, so that he's telling you what the dramatic intention is, he's telling you what opportunities there are to be taken advantage of, he's telling you when to pause, when to breathe, when to emphasize. Delightful. As an actor doing prose, Shakespearean prose, you have none of that guidance anymore. And so it's entirely up to you to find your way through and map your way through in terms of rhythm and cadence and emphasis, prosody, which basically means everything to do with the sound of speech, is not something I've ever seen or heard discussed in a rehearsal room, honestly, including my own. And yet with prose, it is essential to understand the musicality of voice and how you as an actor can weaponize that in order to find a journey through it, which is going to surprise and delight the audience, because mm. that ultimately is the aim of the game. And so for me, prose is much more difficult, both as an actor and as a director. And as a director, I'm very much just starting to explore tools that voice coaches use, for instance, to talk about prosody without giving line readings and that's the real difficulty as a director is that you don't want to prescribe to your actors you want to give them a sandbox that they can play within and innovate within and take ownership of and bring it to life and with prosody the difficulty is that if you were to try and note someone on prosody it would invariably be you've got to say it like this mm. so that's the challenge that I'm trying to navigate right now as we get into much more prose heavy plays merry wives of windsor is 90 percent prose even more prose than henry the fourth part one and so it what's what i love about it is that the process of continuing to go through the plays in the order that they were written or perceived to have been written, con the consensus is they might have been written in, <laughs> depending on how much you want to couch it. Every play throws up a new challenge for me as a director 
um, and novel challenges for the new cast of actors that we have in every week. I think one thing that's different about how we work is that we have an almost entirely new cast every week. And so a lot of those people are learning to do theatre in a new medium for the first time. And a lot of our job is getting them to perform in that medium in the way that we do it, as much as it is also about doing the Shakespeare, doing the character, seizing the dramatic and comic opportunities that the text provides. So there's a hell of a lot that's going on in a two and a half day process. And that means that we have to strive for this Formula One pit crew efficiency. If you can change a tire in 3.2 seconds, that is time saved to spend somewhere else. So every week, Sarah and I are reviewing what happened the week before and saying, what can we do better? Where can we go further? What do we need to change? Um, I'm very, I'm extraordinarily lucky to be able to say that Ben Crystal has been involved in the show since the beginning, curating our guest introducers. And another thing that he does, which is invaluable to me, is watch the show and watch me emceeing the show and then note me on my emceeing. Because that's the only part of the show that doesn't have a director, right? Because I can't direct myself while I'm simultaneously doing the job of presenting a show. So that's a whole other, you know, bag of tricks that needs to be explored. I was going to ask, what's the... um... With you two, what's the kind of pre-rehearsal process? Do you make decisions about, are we going to make any cuts? Are we going to focus on, let's nail that part or whatever. Anything like that going on as you would with a full-scale production with more time? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, So yeah, we, um, for all our shows, we aim for them to be about two and a half hours in terms of running time. We want to do as full a version of, the plays as possible but we also know that people have a you know a limit on how long they can concentrate for particularly on zoom you know zoom fatigue is a, is a thing so we want to keep it uh, still you know entertaining and engaging so two and a half hours is what we aim for so obviously across the chronology uh, some plays can be done almost in their entirety and others need quite a lot of heavy chopping <laughs> so we've worked with um, a couple of people who have helped us with the edit so we let them know ahead of time, you know, the dates for what shows we're doing. We send them the versions of the script that we use because we use a universal version for the whole cast. Obviously, we don't have any of those little discrepancies um, amongst the different versions. And we get the edits back um, from, from those people who have been helping us with the cuts. Every Thursday, uh, once we've done the show the previous night, uh, Rob and I sit down and we do a read of the play. <laughs> And we go through all of the cuts have been marked for us. So Rob as director will have the opportunity to go through and see if there's any bits that he might want to put back in again um, or any other bits that we think actually we want to take this bit out. We generally will remove anything that's kind of obscure Latin references that a modern audience will just not get. Yeah. <laughs> there are some bits where, you know, there might there might be a, an interesting reference that only some people will get, but those, you know, we, we sort of take a little bit of a, a case-by-case basis on what gets left in but um, broadly speaking we want to make it as accessible as possible um, for the audience while maintaining you know the original material so that's the process we go through for editing the script yeah we try not to cut characters and we try not to cut whole scenes Mm. so that you are getting a complete version of the play examples would be things like Romeo and Juliet we kept the kitchen scenes uh, and that's something that often you know 90% of the time gets cut 
and doing that has really surprised some people. The idea that the chorus comes back in Act Two of Romeo and Juliet, people are like, "What are you doing here? What, what's going on?" So think things like that I find uh, are often nice ways for us to give people new sight of the plays, I suppose. I talk about trying to follow the dramatic intention as I see it in terms of what Shakespeare's, what Shakespeare intended the audience to respond to or, or feel or who they intended the audience to follow and things like that. And we've always tried to do it with that in mind, but that's obviously quite a nebulous notion <laughs> uh, and quite an intuitive one at times. Um, and then yeah, casting, casting is probably the next Yeah, time. so casting actually runs through most of the week prior so we usually send out an email to our database so everyone who signed up to receive casting emails that usually goes out on a Sunday varies a little bit depending on (laughs) our kind of workload week to week but that will usually go out then and we have a cutoff deadline of Friday mornings UK time then our casting director Sydney Aldridge uh, will go through all of the applicants Um, I think Generally speaking, she will look at every single person that has applied, which can vary between somewhere in the region of, say, 150, 180 people up to about 400, depending on the popularity of the play, in part. (laughs) And then, yeah, on Friday, she she starts having, you know, sort of a little bit pride to that, that Friday she will go through the applicants. We will give her a breakdown of the characters, anything we've picked up from the read where there's specific characteristics that are referred to in the text, particularly with things, um, you know, sort of looking at different kind of families or we're, we're talking about, you know, sort of the, the likes of, uh, what was the, the t- Falconbridge, that was what I was thinking. Oh, Falconbridge, yes. Yeah, so he's referred to as being skinny throughout. Yes. We had an interesting one this week on Merry Wives where a character is described as having a wart over their left eye. Uh, which unfortunately, you know, is subject to who applies. Uh, we didn't have anyone with that feature. So if, if you were tuning in uh, just for that, you're going to be disappointed, unfortunately. Or if you're listening to this now with a wart over your left eye and going, damn, could have got the part. That was your chance. That was your chance. Yeah, absolutely. And so um, when rehearsal starts, how long do you, how long do you have? Because it must be so rapid. Uh, yes, it, it, it is rapid. It is rapid. I, w- I want to cover off a couple more things on casting oh, first. Yeah namely diversity of underrepresented groups and uh, diversity of experience. So uh, whenever we, obviously, again, we can only cast from the candidates that we get. uh, But that said, we always try and maximise inclusion of underrepresented groups in theatre. And we also believe that Shakespeare is for everyone. And for that reason, we always have a spectrum of experienced professionals, recent graduates who maybe don't have professional credits yet, but have uh, been drama school trained, experienced amateurs uh, so people that have done a lot of acting just for the love of it uh, and then some people that have never said it out loud before and we do that very deliberately so that people can understand that this is for them as well because I think it's it's really important to see yourself if you're just curious about Shakespeare and you've not really approached it yet if you see someone else who's like that actually in it and doing it it's going to make it more likely for you to go oh I have permission to be here right Mm. And similarly with underrepresented groups in theatre as well. Um, you know, we've been lucky to be able to have a couple of parts played by a disabled actor. We've obviously managed to get good 
ethnic minority representation, things of that nature. Also, uh, I think we've managed a reasonably good distribution of male, female. I think that we're almost 50-50, so we cross-cast a number of roles. We do it gender blind, so the pronouns for the characters stay the same. We're not adapting it in that way, but they're uh, played by women based on the principle that, of course, they would have all been played by men back in Elizabethan times. So now that actors are both men and women, actors play all the parts, just as they did back in Shakespeare's day. So that's casting. Sorry, what was the other question? I was just actually (laughs) just on that. I I think um, I was I was going to say I love the way that uh, that works with your your productions when you're seeing spoons as forests people in their own homes in their own squares on zoom it's apart from it being a digital medium totally different form of theater it's also like a a figurative one as well so i think like cast casting blind like that totally goes out out the window it does sometimes seem like a waste of time when people debate you know whether we should make it henrietta the fifth as opposed to just cast a woman like or cast cast whoever like you will your as an audience your brain will accept pretty much anything you know if you just say this is the way this play is working um you don't need yeah. to come up with a reason in the text the reason's obvious you wanted to give someone from this background a part so yeah absolutely and when we work with actors as well when they are cross cast we talk about never using any kind of affectation of masculinity for instance if it's a woman playing a male role Mm. Uh, you know we don't ask people to deepen or gruffen up their voices or or bulk you know bulk out their shoulders or anything like that they're human beings Mm. (laughs) the characters are human beings play the emotions the thoughts the circumstances of that human being and within five minutes at most an audience will have completely forgotten the fact that you're playing cross-cast. And what I think is really interesting now, because we have, you know, if an audience in a theatre can accept a woman as a man within five minutes because it's on a stage, they should be able to do that in real life as well with a similar lack of problem about it. Yeah. So when it comes to to rehearsal once you've stacked them all together are you are, do they have i'm imagining there's some overlap is there or or do you or is it literally week in week out new one it's week in week out 7 days a week so rehearsal starts sunday and then uh, sunday evening really and then we go till wednesday morning and it's obviously with people in different time zones uh, that's often quite siloed off into groups of people in different countries coming at different times rehearsing their parts. Often we have, we have swings that help us out so that if there's any technical uh, things that go wrong in the night, they'll jump in um, for all of the roles that they cover. So we have uh, two people covering half the roles each. They will often read in for missing people during rehearsal. And, uh, and that's really useful because often we can rehearse a scene twice, doing it once with one person and once with another, and they never meet until the night. <laughs> so they're kind of discovering the other person's performance at the time, which l- lends itself to really good active listening. Similarly, we never actually do a run of the show before the one that the audience sees. That is the only time it's actually done. Really? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So all of rehearsal time is spent on moment-to-moment minutiae. And then it gets put together in order on the night for the first time, which means that the actors, when they're not in a scene, are watching things that they've arguably never seen before. Wow. uh, And then going, oh, actually, I've got got to get on stage soon. I've got to start concentrating. And so it's it's a really compressed pressured process it forces efficiency ingenuity it forces simplicity and clarity as well which i think is something that some 
moribund institutions with an excess of rehearsal time maybe lose <laughs> as a result of having too long to explore things and disappear into avenues and niches that maybe are less important to an audience. Go on, I think something that's something that's interesting is we were talking earlier about you know all of the tools that Shakespeare gives you in the verse and when you actually compress actors into a short space of time they end up relying on that and their instincts as a human and just making a decision and and it works you know um, there's always going to be different interpretations but that's the beauty of it you know every, every actor that comes through and plays a different role and it's particularly interesting with the histories where you have different actors playing the same characters mm. you know they they just have that um, you know, they get the sent the script uh, late on Friday. They have Saturday and some of Sunday to kind of read through, prepare, start making some notes and get familiar with their characters before we are on runaway train through to showtime. And there you you do just have to rely on that just spontaneity and that, you know, what what does your gut tell you? And you know, and you said that playfulness as well. And it's mm. and it's really, really fascinating. It really reinforces that Shakespeare is to be done on its feet and out loud and no one pays 60 quid to look at the sheet music of Beethoven's fifth so for me it's a it's a critical failure in the way that Shakespeare is taught or introduced to people that it is in any way literary it's not that's the annotation of a performance and the actor is there to read the music of that sheet <laughs> and perform it for you with 90% of the work done so you can sit and listen and receive and appreciate without having to go through and meticulously decode it yourself. That's our job. Mm -hmm. And so if you are sitting there going, what the bloody hell is going on here? That generally means that we haven't done our jobs as well as we should have done. And I take that on the chin all the time. There are people that have come into the live chat for our shows, very, very few and far between. But we've had a couple of individuals who've come in and gone, given it 15 minutes and gone, I don't get it, I'm going. And that, but that really hits me really hard because I mean, it always takes time to tune your ear in, right? Because it's 400 years old, that's inevitable. But what I want to do and what I'm trying to do is make Shakespeare for everyone. And that means making it accessible and as clear as possible. Mm. The challenge for us is doing that while also making it entertaining and moving in two and a half days every single week. So for that reason, I do take a little bit of the pressure off myself when I remember to. But nevertheless, my job while we're in the rehearsal room is often drawing out a lot of that coded in material that Shakespeare's put in there, making the actor aware of how they can utilise that and then asking them to get carried away. You know, we talk so much, don't we, about the wisdom of crowns. Mm. Absolutely. And, you know, everyone bring ideas can come from anywhere, but one person cannot have all of the ideas. And there's a brilliant thing about, you know, sparking off from other people. Someone can throw a, an idea into the ring and some and it, and it won't work necessarily on its own. But then someone else builds upon it, takes it, grows it, runs with it. And suddenly you've got something that's really special and really exciting for the audience. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we have a, a fantastic creative team that we work with who all have specialisms in, you know, the different areas. We've got Emily doing props. We've got Yaris and Enrique doing our fight and movement. And so getting them to then work with the actors who have also got their own unique skill set, their own unique experiences and, you know, just perspectives. 
um, it's a brilliant kind of melting pot of creativity and every week is completely different on what everyone's going to bring to the table. Yeah. There's something about your process that seems to be much closer or, or to sh- share a lot more with how it would have been for Shakespeare in the, well, we were rehearsing The Merry Wives, but some noblemen's come into town and demanded Richard II. So who knows it? Uh, brush it up. It, it's all, we're on tomorrow. By putting your actors through that and going through that yourself, you must be emulating that, which uh, you talked earlier about the opportunity that abnormal, deeply stressful times create. That's something that, uh, how could you economically or practically conjure that in ordinary times? That would be, you know, a huge, massive budget, year and year long project by someone like the BBC or the RSC or something like that to undertake. And that's the joy of this is that it, it is crowd created it is a movement it and it, it exists not even because i had the initial idea it exists because the people that responded to that idea did so with such passion and such commitment from week one to turn this into the the first truly global publicly owned catalog of the performed complete works to exist you know, there are other versions out there. You know, the BBC did a, a filmed version of the Complete Works. The RSC has them. But I don't think the BBC ones are freely available. And I know the RSC ones aren't. No, um, and even if they were available, the BBC one would not necessarily be available in Canada or Venezuela or Japan. This is available everywhere, free forever. And that is due to the passion of every single individual that has put themselves forward to help get the ring to Mordor. You know, this is an unbelievably huge undertaking and it will be nothing without those willing to come and play their part in that undertaking, which is why we currently have over 1800 people signed up to our mailing list. And that number continues to grow by small amounts every week. And we encourage people to come and take part, come and be a part of this. If you've enjoyed watching them, if you've watched most of the shows that we've done, or even a proportion of the shows that we've done, you've probably seen more Shakespeare than some of the people that have already been in the show. So if you are a fan, get involved. If you are someone that already knows loads about Shakespeare, come and get involved, there is space for you. We want to get as many people, as many different perspectives from as many different backgrounds through the virtual doors on this because we know that this is gonna stand there and in five years time, in 10 years time, in 15 years time, maybe, people will still be falling upon these when they're desperately Googling to look for resources for their homework or they are, as we've already had in a hospital and unable to watch live theatre and want to find something that replicates that experience that is is safe for them to consume. You know, we've had so many moving stories. Um, One person mentioned about how they have an autistic son that would get sensory overload in a traditional theatre space, but the two-dimensionality of Zoom makes it digestible for them. And so there's all kinds of unintended consequences that we never would have thought of all thanks to what we call the co-equal contributors, of which we've currently had over 300, and we're not even halfway through yet. 
So by the time we finished, we'll probably be on about 750, something like that, 750 people having contributed. So it's a massive community effort. I wanted to say, as seeing the project take form, it's a real, it's an extra delight to see the little innovations just creep in here and there, the practical effects, add addition of additional props, just and the, the on the technical side of things as well. I want to ask you a bit about some of your favourite versions of those, whether it's the fight scenes or the dubbing of the letters in Love's Labour's Lost, moments like that, and also what what the hell is going through your heads as it's happening? Because from my I find it quite difficult to do something like this and to keep a check on my recording over Zoom. There's my sound, there's your sound, checking everything's got battery and that kind of thing. You're doing that live with a lot of people. Your job is not just director, not just, you, you know, both of you talking about the show in the in the interval and afterwards. But you're almost like a DJ as well, I guess. You must be, just be scrambling around, making sure every, everyone's in the right place. What's that like, if not just terrifying? <laughs> <laughs> it's it's funny you say about terrifying because we we every week we get this with the actors as well but the stage fright is so real <laughs> yeah and so many of them have said actually it's really lovely to get that feeling back because they've not had it for, for such a long time now yeah. um but it really is the first few shows was really nerve-wracking and i think we're now starting to get a little bit more used to it but barely you know it's um it really is really quite a nerve-wracking experience and and partly because you you're down to the mercy of the, you know the internet gods um being in your favor you know there's only so much that that we can control so we try to carry out a lot of things that can go wrong so as rob mentioned earlier we have our, our swings in place who are there to step in if anyone experiences a you know in, internet connection issue mid-show mm-hmm. um and we have um emily ingram uh, who does our props but she also, she's also our stage manager She's, so she's there just keeping an eye on everyone and being able to communicate with the cast if anyone's experiencing difficulties, if anyone, you know, camera controls get stuck. We had people last week whose trackpad stopped working because they were sweating onto their keyboards. Oh. <laughs> so they couldn't turn their camera off. Oh. Um, and, you know, and all of that liveness is still... Which happened to me so. as well in Midsummer Night's Dream. Right. I, I sweated so much onto my trackpad that uh, it actually deleted a scene. So I had to, I had to quickly hammer the, the control Z to get the script to actually come back. Uh, yeah, it's yeah. quite extraordinary. But in terms of technical innovations, there are so many moments in it that I'm, I'm really chuffed with and really proud of. Thank you for mentioning the dubbing of the letters. Um, that, that, was a, that was one that I nicked from Ant-Man. Um, and I think it's really important to always, it's, always, it's important, all good artists steal, right? But it's about taking something from one genre or medium and putting it into another. Uh, and so I try to do as much of that as possible. Adam Woodhams, our sound designer, has massively changed the game in terms of how much we can do with soundscaping uh, and creating atmosphere, how much we can do narratively with setting an audience's expectation before the scene has happened so that we're inducting them into the right energy. Um, but also just making every play feel vibrant and different so that those that are turn, turn, tuning in week in and week out don't start to feel a monotony setting in. I think that that for me is my greatest fear with a medium like this, which is in many ways very restrictive, 
is that the plays can't help but feel very similar to one another. Mm. And if you've watched 16 of them, they're all going to bleed into a kind of uh, nondescript soup. So that's the reason that we drive the innovation principally. And, you know, I was delighted that we managed to pull off a joust with uh, horses in Richard II. That was great. I was really pleased with how that ended up looking on Zoom as well, because for a lot of these, we're left at the mercy of the Zoom gods, whether things are going to orientate in the uh, correct manner. We don't actually have any control over that. The one time we did have control over it was in Romeo and Juliet, where we took, we got them to turn their cameras to the side so that they could kiss each other so that it looked to the audience like they were actually making contact through the edges of the frame. So we had to rehearse the actors in, putting their laptops in different positions. So moving them from straight in front of them to either one side or the other, depending on what orientation Zoom put them in. Then code that using a number system. So go to position one or position two. Then live on the night, while the scene was happening, this is while they're doing their famous shared sonnet, we then had to watch the YouTube stream, which is on a 10 second delay until that pops up. And then we see those are the positions they're in. And this person is on the left-hand side, which means they need to go to position two, go into the Zoom chat, which the actors had to have open on top of their scripts and go, go to position two. I repeat, position two. And then they had about four lines until they had to hit those marks and go in for the kiss. And they did it like seamlessly without any hint that all this was going on behind the scenes. But that's an example of how extreme the Zoom wrangling can get, I suppose. Yeah. But other fun moments, I think the cliff fall from Arthur in King John is one of those moments that I have no idea how they did it at the at the actual globe. I imagine that maybe they had a trapdoor with a hell of a lot of straw <laughs> or something like Assassin's Creed style. Or, uh, I, you know, I don't know how they did it. I don't know how they do it in most productions unless they're wired. But in ours, we were able to create a really genuinely convincing effect of standing on a cliff edge, falling in slow motion, and then hitting the ground with impact all through using two cameras for that actor. One one being the floor and one being them up on the ledge. Midsummer Night's Dream is a brilliant example of dynamic camera. And one thing that really started to come in from around Richard III was the idea of the actors leading the camera rather than the camera leading the actors. And we've tried to explore that more and more. And I think it reached its zenith out of necessity in Midsummer Night's Dream because the characters in that are sprinting around the woods for two hours. That's what the play is. Yeah. <laughs> and it demanded that of us. And w- fortunately, we had an incredible cast that was so game and had laptops that allowed them to be mobile with the camera to create a whole range of different effects. So I'd highly recommend checking that out if you're into the innovation side of the medium, I guess. Yeah. I, uh, I wanted to ask, who knows what's going to happen, but as perhaps lockdown eases are you thinking about what which ways you can change the way you do things or are you going to make sure you keep because it, it seems a, it would seem a shame to lose this global aspect that you've got i mean how how else would you replace that even if there was no travel restrictions or anything like that but i i wondered if there was anything on your mind in terms of Shall we explore this or that? Short answer, no. I believe that the easing of lockdown is a mistake. 
I believe that the handling of it by our government has been shambolic at best. And I fear for the implications for our society and the death toll as a result of all that. The arts are receiving no support. We have a fag packet roadmap, quote unquote, which you can fit in a tweet um, and has no details and no sub- nothing substantive about it. Theatres have been told they can open but can't put on live shows. Um, exactly, it's paradoxical. I started this in a way because I assumed the worst. So when, when I first lost that first gig, I perhaps arrogantly said, loads of people are going to lose jobs and they did and that sucks i'm not not proud of that but that's what happened and that put us in a position where we could get the ball rolling on this and get so many incredible people engaged so it's been a silver lining of our lockdown in that way it is my view now that we will experience a second peak and that we'll probably re-enter lockdown at some stage for those that have a smash and grab approach to getting out and getting some sunshine while they can get it knowing that that's coming down the road I'm not going to judge anyone. Lockdown is hard. Lockdown is incredibly difficult on mental health, for instance, and it takes a real, real toll on people. So I get it. But we will be doing this until November, and I believe there will still be a need for it until November. Once we finish the whole canon, who knows? (laughs) Uh, You know, we'd love to create a rep company out of the many incredible actors that we've met and worked with over this time. We would love to do a world tour and visit every hometown of every actor that we've done these shows in oh, yeah. and actually take season and and take it to those places and say Shakespeare is for everyone. And that means everyone where you are, not just in London or wherever. Yeah, that would be amazing. We are reaching out right now to theatres to say you can open. You can't do live performances. But what you could do is stream our show if you wanted to and open up a portion of the house and sell tickets for that so that people have the ambience of a theatre while they're watching Shakespeare. It keeps people in the habit of going to those venues and it keeps people in the habit of watching classical work during summer, which is arguably the most popular time for Shakespeare, right? Yeah. So we're reaching out to theatres right now to say, if you want to screen our shows and use them, as a fundraiser for you to try and stay open we want you to do that (laughs) please please we will send you the link you can stream it it's all good you know we shout out our patreon on the show at the beginning middle and end those people that will donate money to your theater might donate money to us that's enough for us but we want to make sure that with theaters facing a a truly existential, and that sounds philosophical, it's not a life or death crisis. Anything that we can do to help those venues, which up until now, of course, because they've been shut down, there's nothing that we can do. If showing one of our shows can get some people safely and manageably in to experience live theatre, because we are live, all the actors are doing it in six different time zones simultaneously, together with you watching it at home it is live it might not be in the room theater but it is live theater if you want to show a live show in your theater let us know and we'll be more than happy to to set that up and to make that happen um so yes there are some things that we're looking at you know uh, doing but none of it really changes the the format of how we're going to execute things because i don't want to be responsible for putting anyone in danger and that's 
actors or audience. And to me, there are questions I have over venues opening. How do you use the toilet? There's just, there's fundamentals, there's basics that I don't know the answers to. Fortunately, as a, as a director, that's not my responsibility. But if I started saying to actors, drive across town and, you know, get into a space together, it, that becomes my responsibility. And I'm, I'm not willing to endanger anyone in order to create art that should be healing, mm. right? The whole point of it is to nourish. And if it could have the opposite intention of that, I, I couldn't live with it, I don't think. Yeah. Oh, guys, thank you so much for your time. I want to ask you to um, just give a, 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 a shout out to your Patreon and, and where people can find you. But um, first, I, I've made a bit of a habit with guests since this is a book podcast to ask everyone it comes on if they can if they can recommend uh, a book that's perhaps connected to your world. It's not the play we're talking about, not Henry the Fourth part one or two, unless there's a very particular version of it that you'd recommend. Um, but perhaps something from the world of Shakespeare, from the world of acting or anything that you think might have might be relevant to what we've uh, chatted about today. That is a really good question. I'm going to go and raid the bookshelf go quickly. It's <laughs> <laughs> got a few. <laughs> Come in handy when we have guests on um, <laughs> being able to flash up. Yeah. yeah. The book that this person wrote, which I have right here. <laughs> I've seen that. Yeah. With, uh, yeah. Eric Russell. It's like, oh, yeah. Brilliant genuinely does use that book every week <laughs> I, I absolutely love your um you were just saying about it feeling like a, a rep company and mm -hmm. and talk I, I love the pre-show after show interval stuff as well it, it really adds such a lot and uh, I've discovered some great Shakespeare buffs to um check out through it as well yeah absolutely um it's so fascinating um, the, the guests that Ben Crystal curates for us are fantastic and we get so many comments from the audience that it's so helpful to have that little introduction to the show, but without having to read like an entire synopsis, yeah. it's just, this is what you need to know about this. And, and it really just sets up the show beautifully. And then the, yeah, the, the, the sort of chat we did started out was because we wanted to give people an interval break. So we thought, well, we'll just chat to the audience. If anyone's got questions for people, and then we thought oh, it would be a nice opportunity at the end as well, um, you know, for the audience, you know, the audience are there with us. It's, you know, a unique opportunity. We, you don't normally do that in theatres. Obviously, you could, but yeah. it's generally not done. So, yeah, it's just something we started doing from, from the off and <laughs> kept it going. It's brilliant. I don't know why all productions don't have a good pre-show bit like that. It's brilliant. I'm gonna, I'd am gonna, i miss it if I go back to, to seeing something uh, in real life whenever that happens. But um, yeah. also the bits in, in between kind of replicate you know, an interesting inter interval bar conversation, that kind of thing. I really love that. It really adds such a lot. Absolutely. So I've narrowed it down to six, I think. Ah, nice. <laughs> That's the kind um, of answer we like. Yeah. So I think um, Ben Crystal's Shakespeare on Toast is the best primer. If you're new to Shakespeare and, or you're curious about Shakespeare, you want to get into it as like an audience member and understand some of why it's really good. <laughs> I think Shakespeare on Toast is a wonderful introduction that allows you to approach it fearlessly because what Ben does so beautifully is articulate the quality of Shakespeare in a, in a simple accessible way but also gives you some of the context that allows you to get so much more out of it when you're listening without making it difficult or obtuse or academic 
and just allows you to get yourself to a place where the more you seek, the more you find. So that's a great place to start if you're if you're not, you know, a Shakespeare buff, if you like. If you're interested in performing Shakespeare, I'd say Speaking Shakespeare by Patsy Rodenberg is really, really good for both the physiological, practical side of how to uh, use the muscularity of Shakespeare's language really well. I'd say Giles Block's Speaking the Speech is a really good one for more of that, what I call the Shakespeare code. I do workshops where I talk about cracking the Shakespeare code. Um, so I would say that that's a really good one for starting to understand some of those codes mm -hmm. um, and as an actor and what actually knowing a bit more about Shakespeare's Elizabethan education and classical rhetoric and poetic structures, which might feel intimidating if you're a more intuitive actor, what actually even knowing a little bit about some of those can unlock so much and make everything so much easier. The Shakespeare deck is a particularly excellent tool created by a wonderful individual called Rob Miles. That is essentially the condensation and distillation of 12 years of working almost exclusively on Shakespeare, reading every book I can read, working with every person I can work with, um, doing the shows, touring the country, seeing what audiences respond to, and then saying, what works for me? Because don't get me wrong, there's too much for you to ever hold in your brain at once. Mm. <laughs> there really is. You're never going to be a master of every single thing that there is to be a master of in Shakespeare, where to the point where you can just look at it on a page and go, there it is. Everyone needs some help. So I created the Shakespeare deck to condense down all of that knowledge, make it actionable and practical, practical and put it on a playing card and simplify the definition and provide you with examples from within Shakespeare's text and say, this is what <laughs> this means and this is what it looks like. So that when you're going through your text, you can find it yourself in whatever part it happens to be that you're playing. It has exercises, it has definitions, it has just things to bear in mind that are really helpful for delivering Shakespeare's text effectively. Uh, and it fits in your pocket and it's waterproof. Well, I say waterproof, it's water resistant is what I should say. I don't want to get sued. Uh, but it's, it's laminated, right? So, so they're hardworking, they're, they're durable, they're portable, and they're simple. So they take a lot of these quite big, complex ideas and simplify them. Um, the other thing that I would recommend is William Shakespeare's Star Wars by Ian Desher, which is a piece that I've had the privilege now to direct excerpts from and... It is a brilliant combination of Shakespeare and pop culture, a wonderful overlap of those two most beloved of things, Shakespeare and Star Wars, which for me are genuinely my two like OG loves and passions, right? So the idea that we could put them together and then we could do them was incredible. So yeah, I would definitely recommend that as well. Brilliant. Thank you so much, guys. I've, I've really loved today. Um, and thank you. It's been an epic one as as <laughs> as a two-part history um probably would have uh, guaranteed can you let anyone know listening where to find you if they haven't um already watched your shows and where to support you um after that um uh, web website <laughs> various different uh, yes web so YouTube. the website is robmiles.co.uk forward slash the show must go online 
the YouTube channel, which is where all the content gets put and created, and there's a playlist so that you can see all of the shows, you can sift through them, pick what you like, is youtube.com forward slash Rob Miles. And that's Miles, M for mother, Y for young, L-E-S, M-Y-L-E-S, for both of those. You can find us on Twitter at TSMG Online Live. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook at The Show Must Go Online. I think that's all of them. Oh, and if you want to support us with a financial donation, what we do is we operate what we call an opt-in hardship fund. So obviously actors and artists and creatives that are taking part in this piece will have invariably have lost work as a result of COVID-19. If you want to support those people, they can opt in based on what show they were involved in with no criteria to receive a share of the total amount of money that goes into the Patreon. You can, del- you can donate as little as £1.30, I believe. But obviously, we would appreciate more than that if you can spare it. <laughs> and the Patreon is simply patreon.com forward slash the show must go online. Perfect. Well, guys, thank you so much. Um, it's been a real treat today. And I'm saying in the past, uh, break a leg for Merry Wives and Henry the Fourth Part Two. By the time people hear this, they will have both come out. And you'll be working on uh, what comes afterwards. Much Ado About Nothing. Much Ado About Nothing. So that's the next one for listeners to look out for. Um, yes, and a, and a wonderful addition to the prose-heavy canon as well. It seems that Shakespeare's hit this vein that he's just decided to mine now because, of course, Much Ado, very prose-heavy as well. Yeah, sod the verse. He's in that. that, that. <laughs> Who needs it? Yeah. <laughs>